Mere Christianity, Book 1, Chapter 5 We Have Cause to Be Uneasy I ended my last chapter with the idea that in the moral law, somebody or something from beyond the material universe was usually getting at us. And I expect when I reached that point, some of you felt a certain annoyance. You may even have thought that I had played a trick on you, that I had been carefully wrapping up to look like philosophy what turns out to be one more religious jaw. You may have felt you were ready to listen to me as long as you thought I had everything new to say or anything new to say. But if it turns out to be only religion, well, the world has tried that and you cannot put the clock back. If anyone is feeling that way, I should like to say three things to him. First, as to putting the clock back, would you think I was joking if I said that you can put a clock back? And that if the clock is wrong, it is often a very sensible thing to do. But I would rather get away from that whole idea of clocks. We all want progress. But progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case... The man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when doing arithmetic. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. Then secondly, this has not yet turned exactly into a religious jaw. We have not yet got as far as the God of any actual religion. Still less the God of that particular religion called Christianity. We have only got as far as a somebody or something behind the moral law. We are not taking anything from the Bible or the churches. We are trying to see what we can find out about this somebody on our own steam. And I want to make it quite clear that what we find out on our own steam is something that gives us a shock. We have two bits of evidence about the somebody. One is the universe he has made. If we use that as our only clue, then I think we should have to conclude that he was a great artist. For the universe is a very beautiful place, but also that he is quite merciless and no friend to man. For the universe is a very dangerous and terrifying place. The other bit of evidence is that moral law, which he has put into our minds. And this is a better bit of evidence than the other because it is inside information. You find out more about God from the moral law than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. Now, from this second bit of evidence, we conclude that the being behind the universe is intensely interested in right conduct, in fair play, unselfishness, courage, good faith, honesty and truthfulness. 
In that sense, we should agree with the account given by Christianity and some other religions that God is good. But do not let us go too fast here. The moral law does not give us any grounds for thinking that God is good in the sense of being indulgent or soft or sympathetic. There is nothing indulgent about the moral law. It is as hard as nails. It tells you to do the straight thing and it does not seem to care about how painful or dangerous or difficult it is to do. If God is like the moral law, then he is not soft. It is no use at this stage saying that what you mean by a good God is a God who forgave. You are going too quickly. Only a person can forgive. And we have not yet got as far as a personal God, only as far as a power behind the moral law and more like a mind than it is like anything else. But it may still be very unlike a person. If it is pure and personal mind, there may be no sense in asking it to make allowances for you or let you off. Just as there is no sense in asking the multiplication table to let you off when you do your sums wrong, you are bound to get the wrong answer. And it is no use either saying that if there is a God of that sort, an impersonal absolute goodness, then you do not like him or and are not going to bother about him. For the trouble is that one part of you is on his side and really agrees with his disapproval of human greed and trickery and exploitation. You may want him to make an exception in your own case to let you off this one time. But you know at bottom that unless the power behind the world really and unadulterably detests that sort of behavior, then he cannot be good. On the other hand, we know that if there does exist an absolute goodness, it must hate most of what we do. This is the terrible fix we are in. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness, then all our efforts are in a long run hopeless. But if it is, then we are making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day and are not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow. And so our case is hopeless again. We cannot do without it and we cannot do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. Here's our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people think as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Now, my third point, when I chose to get to my real subject in this roundabout way, I was not trying to play any kind of trick on you. I had a different reason. My reason was that Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts I have been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, 
to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. When you have realized that our position is nearly desperate, you will begin to understand what the Christians are talking about. They offer an explanation of how we got into our present state of both hating goodness and loving it. They offer an explanation of how God can be this impersonal mind at the back of the moral law and yet also a person. They tell you how the demands of this law, which you and I cannot meet, have been met on our behalf. How God himself becomes a man to save man from the disapproval of God. It is an old story, and if you want to go into it, you will no doubt consult people who have more authority to talk about it than I have. All I am doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer, and they are very terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. Of course, I quite agree that the Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort. But it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing. And it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through that dismay. In religion, as in war, and everything else, Comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Most of us have got over the pre-war wishful thinking about international politics. It is time we did the same about religion. Super deep. I want to pause for a quick moment um, before we get into book two. Amazing things. I, I highlighted some things and I, I think um, I just read the last part, so I won't start there. But um, one of those things being God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally and we have made ourselves his enemies. Um, amazing. Amazingly true. Another statement. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger. According to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Now that one I'm not fully sure about. Not that I don't agree with it. I wanted him to elaborate. So I, um, I'm hoping that he does get to elaborate if you understand off the bat please tell me another point it is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power it is after all of this and not a moment sooner that christianity begins to talk the bible talks about how um 
For the sacrifices of God are that of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So it reminds me of that scripture, like where, like fam, like before we can do anything. And the Bible also talks about the beginning of wisdom, like the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like everything starts with him. Everything starts with the acknowledging of who he is and who he is in your life and that and who he is to this world and then after that we can go forward after that we can go forward in philosophy after that we can go forward in um science after that we can go forward in medicine after that we can go forward in truth and we know that they that worship worship in spirit and in truth um Last statement, I'll read it again for for emphasis. In religion, as in war and everything else, comfort is the only thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Most of us have got over the pre-war wishful thinking about international politics. It is time we did the same about religion. I kind of want to stop there for today. I kind of want to stop there. Because I think that was a lot to, to get to. But, I mean, you can, you guys can pause this. And so we'll get on, we'll get on the book too. Um. Book two, what Christians believe, what Christians believe. Chapter one, the rival conceptions of God. I have been asked to tell you what Christians believe, and I am going to begin by telling you one thing that Christians do not need to believe. If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all those religions, even the queerest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them the most. When I became a Christian, I was able to make a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that there that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. The first big division of humanity is into the majority who believe in some kind of God or gods and in a minority who do not. On this point, Christianity lines up with the majority. Just a second. As I told you guys, I'm I'm doing this off rip, very low editing on the front end. Christianity lines up with the majority, lines up with ancient Greeks and Romans, modern savages, Stoics, Platonists, Hindus. 
Mohammedans. I, I, I'm, that's probably Muslims. Um, this was written a while ago. Um, Mohammedans, <laughs> etc. Against the mana, and I'll, I'll just going forward. He does say Mohammedans more often in his book. Um, I'll just substitute it for Muslim, um, etc. Against the modern Western European materialists. Now I go on to the next big division. People who all believe in God can be divided according to the sort of God they believe in. There are two very different ideas on this subject. One of them is the idea that he is beyond good and evil. We humans call one thing good and another thing bad. But according to some people that this is merely our human point of view, these people would say that the wiser you become, the less you would want to call anything good or bad. And the more clearly you would see that everything is good in one way and bad in another and that nothing could have been different. Consequently, these people think that long before you got anywhere near the divine power point of view, the distinction would have disappeared altogether. We call a cancer bad. They would say because it kills a man. But you might just as well call a successful surgeon bad because he kills a cancer. It all depends on the point of view. The other and opposite idea is that God is quite definitely good or righteous. A God who takes sides, who loves love and hates hatred, who wants us to behave in one way and not in another. The first of these views, the one that thinks God beyond good and evil is called pantheism. It was held by the great Prussian philosopher Hegel, and as far as I can understand them by the Hindus. The other view is held by Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And with this big difference between pantheism and the Christian idea of God, there usually goes another. Pantheists usually believe that God, so to speak, animates the universe as you animate your body, that the universe almost is God, so that if it did not exist, he would not exist either, and anything you find in the universe is a part of God. The Christian idea is quite different. They think God invented and made the universe, like a man making a picture or composing a tune. A painter is not a picture. And he does not die if his picture is destroyed. You may say he's put a lot of himself into it. But you only mean that all its beauty and interest has come out of his head. His skill is not in the picture in the same way that it is in his head or even in his hands. I expect you see how this difference between pantheists and Christians hangs together with one another. With the other one. If you do not take the distinction between good and bad very seriously, then it is easy to say that anything you find in this world is a part of God. But of course, if you think something's really bad and God really good, then you cannot talk like that. You must believe that God is separate from the world and that some of the things we see in it are contrary to his will. Confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you, can, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk damned nonsense. 
for Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. And of course, that raises a very big question. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I simply refused to think to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling Whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call the line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish could not feel wet. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning, just as if there was no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Reading, reading again for emphasis, this, these last couple of sentences, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning, just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Next week, we will read chapter two of book two um, and we'll finish out book two. Chapter two is the invasion. Um, I pray that this is blessing you guys just as much as it is blessing me. Um, don't forget. Thank God for the group chat um, drops on Tuesday. Another episode drops on Tuesday. Um, have no clue what we'll be talking about outside of it being um, Black History Month and it being um, 
you know, I want to call it love week, um, but Valentine's Day. Um, so we'll be talking more about those things. Um, and just stay tuned. I don't know when another scene it is dropping. Not sure. But um, just stay tuned. Thank you guys for listening. Um, grace and peace. Hello out there. This is Keith and you are listening to I Pray This Helps. Um, guys, as you know, we are in a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So today we're going to finish chapter five of book one. So the way that is set up is that there are different books inside of this book, albeit that this book isn't long. You know, this is still the case. So we we are going to read chapter five of book one. And then we're going to start chapter two or, or book two. I don't know how far we'll get. Um, so that's why I'm telling you guys up front. Um, so far, this book has been a blessing to me. I pray that it is a blessing and a reassurance or an assurance to you. Um, if you are a believer, um, if you're not a believer, I pray that this um, reinforces everything that you have been taught as Christians have told you, you know what I mean? If, uh, you know, if, if not, I pray that it debunks and I pray that it, um, gets your mind jogging, you know what I mean? And I pray that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life as he is continuing to do in mine and believers alike. Um, and so without any further ado, we are going to start, um, chapter five of book one, chapter five, book one isn't Chapter five in book one is called um, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. So we'll be right back after this sound. (laughs) 